Welcome to the Opposable Thumbs podcast. Opposable Thumbs is a podcast where Taylor and Rob tackle a new creative challenge every two weeks and talk about our accomplishments, failures, and lessons learned. Overkill is our challenge this episode, thanks to Kate Conlon, last episode, for giving us that challenge. Mm -hmm. And Matthew Shinoda is our guest this episode. Greetings, Matt. Hey, hey. My name is Rob Ray. I use the he, his gender pronoun and run the exoskeleton art space in Los Angeles. And I'm a designer in L.A. My name's Taylor Hokinson. I'm an artist and educator based in Chicago, DIY enthusiast, CAD cam evangelist, and a noted tall person. I'm a he, his kind of guy. All right. I'm Matthew Shinoda. I am presently based in Providence, Rhode Island. I am primarily a poet, but also um, an arts educator and administrator at the Rhode Island School of Design. Indeed. Yeah. Fre- freshly minted, right? I see your Skype That's still right. says you live in Evanston. Well, my Skype is wrong. Yeah, your digital your digital <laughs> trails have yet to catch up with you. It's the long tail of, of inaccurate status. That's right. <laughs> I don't mind admitting that I am way excited to show you guys what I did this week. Oh, I I am too. I often oh. feel like it's uh it's like getting one of those rolfing back ribs where you're glad that it's over. You know what I mean? Or like taking an uh-huh. art history class. <laughs> But um, I feel like this time I had fun making it, and I'm going to have fun showing it. So, yeah, I'm, well, that's, I'm excited. That's exciting. I'm glad someone feels that way. Cause, uh, <laughs> yeah, so, so Matthew, you, um, I really appreciated that uh, as we were approaching this project, you laughed when I said you should come do it, and then you said <laughs> yes, and you also said I don't know how to make anything. And uh, which I really enjoy the combination of those two. Like, I have no idea what I'll do, but why not? Is is, yeah. is that is that something that is common with you, or or did we get super lucky that you were willing to take the risk? No, I, I think it's it's fairly common. I've I've faked most of my life and gotten uh-huh. this far doing it. You know, <laughs> um, and as you'll see from uh, what I share with you, I I did not get entirely creative, at least in terms of. You know, I I moved to writing, which is what I am accustomed to doing. Though I did think about making something physical. And Mm -hmm. for whatever reason, with this idea of overkill, I had this recurring image of an incredibly large rubber band ball (laughs) in in my head. But I didn't have enough rubber bands handy, so I wrote a poem instead. I (laughs) I think we've run into that a number of times on the show. I think... With guests, it's maybe uh, slightly easier if you're only doing the show once, then you can say, well, I'm going to do this ridiculous thing in two weeks. And then for Rob and I, I think it's it's been a process of you have all these ideas and you instantly have to cut the ones that are just, you know, expensive and time consuming. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. otherwise you're just going to go totally broke. Now, <laughs> Rob, we both have uh, a personal connection with Matthew. We do. I met Matthew via my partner in crime, Jen Hoffer. Uh, because you were both at the time at CalArts. That's right. And you are now both at the time not at CalArts. That's correct. Um, and you were uh, the head of diversity at CalArts? Is I, that right? Yeah, I was the assistant provost for equity and diversity there and faculty in the School of Critical Studies where Jen was also teaching. And then, Taylor, you were at Columbia together? Is that right? Uh, yeah, so we, we worked together. Uh, Matthew uh, kept me sane, and I felt like uh, was one of those rare administrators where you could pour your heart out, and he uh, he listened and did not fire me, which I thought was amazing. Um, and also, um, I made a good college try 
at reading Matthew's book some time ago, but I have to admit, Rob, two areas that I'm exceedingly <laughs> ignorant in are um, poetry and dance. Uh, oh, and, yeah. So, uh, Rob, have you have you read any of Matthew's writing? I have. I've read part of Somewhere Else. That one may be a little bit older. I'm sure yeah. you have a, other stuff since then. Um, and poetry is a thing that I've come to know by hanging out with Jen for 10 years at this point. I mean, Jen has given me many interesting ways to think about poetry, mm. some of them in the realm of, you know, don't worry about not understanding it. Just try to understand it, and you're you're doing the right work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. uh, or, or also, she says things like, you know, poetry is the only art form that people will outright just tell you that they hate it right out the gate. <laughs> They're like, oh, <laughs> and country music. Like, oh, no, you're a poet. I hate poetry. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> why do you Why do you think that is? It's kind of like um, there's a discussion around uh, the last remaining uh, discriminations that people feel comfortable with. Mm. Why do you suppose poetry also falls into that supposedly okay realm to, to hate on? Well, you know, I, I, I think, well, one, I think that, you know, grade school and high school teachers are probably to blame for part of that. But uh, the, the, the other piece is that I actually often have the opposite experience. Poetry is the one thing that everybody says they do, right? Mm, so everyone's mm-hmm, a poet. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So that's interesting, too, right? Because everyone says, oh, you're a poet? I'm a poet, too. Yeah, they'll describe, like, source code as poetic, <laughs> you know? Uh, indeed. <laughs> And it's like, well, then you should have to call yourself a poet. <laughs> the book I spent time with was Seasons of Lotus and Seasons of Bone. And I, I remember talking to you about it just a little bit, Matthew. Can you remind me, is it you, either you personally or your family originates at least in part from Egypt, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And that particular book is a kind of loose rendering of the papyrus of Ani, commonly known as the ancient Egyptian book of the dead. And so what I did is I, I I tried to kind of rework that ancient text in a contemporary space. So, you know, it takes place in the same physical location of, of Egypt and the Nile River Valley, but really kind of engaging a lot of contemporary topics. And And even as you say that, I mean, one of the things that I noted, and I was trying to figure out when I was talking to you about it, was it just my lack of awareness of poetry that was holding me a little bit at arm's length. And then if I recall, and, you know, tell me if I'm characterizing this incorrectly, but I liked how you were saying, you know, oh, that wasn't it like your publisher wanted you to have an index of terms at the back and you really fought that because you didn't think that it needed to be that handholdy. Is that accurate? Well, I don't know if I fought it, but it was definitely a discussion, and it's a very common one with those of us who work between languages and between different cultures, that, you know, Mm. this idea to translate or not to translate. Um, And in that case, I think that a lot of the references, especially given that much of it came out of ancient Egypt, were fairly commonplace, or at least could be discovered pretty easily by a reader. Um, Mm. So I didn't see as much of a need for it, but there were certain references in that book that I think were um you know perhaps a little a little more obscure and and certainly help guide a reader but this is a very common debate with a lot of writers as to whether they want to give readers that piece or want the readers to do the work themselves but um at the end of the day we did put a, a little glossary in the end of that book and I I think you know it might be useful for some who knows mm-hmm. well for me certainly but uh, clearly not useful enough if I didn't remember there was a glossary there. 
Uh, but, <laughs> but that's on me. <laughs> yeah, Rob, do you think that, I mean, so, so Rob and I, as our listeners will know, or people that know us, you know, unlike Matthew, are working in a space that seems pretty different. But I think that we also, uh, in that sort of new media world, for lack of a better term, uh, there's also a big problem with the accessibility of the technology we're working with and the extent to which we lay, uh, we we help our viewers through that experience. Rob, I, I think it's pretty fair to say that you and I both make works that actually push push people away. What do you think? I, I always think of myself in this weird uh, uh, space that a lot of people don't understand. Um, I'm also a designer at a place that is 99% in engineering and science um facility at the jet propulsion lab and so oh. even that makes me feel like it's like um uh i'm further down in the hole you know <laughs> of, of yeah. like misunderstood but yeah i used to live right down the street from there it's an incredible place oh, cool. yeah 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 it's fun yeah i have one question for matthew well i have a couple but I, I'll, I'll, I'll pare it down to one i was curious about the african poetry book fund yes and just um i i um, when I was like, oh, I'm going to see what Matthew's up to, I discovered that you were a founding member of the African Poetry Book Fund. Yeah. And it looked really rad. And so I was just curious if you could highlight yeah. kind of what it's about. Absolutely. I, I think it's incredibly rad. Um, so there's a group of us. We were, were kind of uh, called to the helm by Kwame Dawes, who's a well-known poet and writer who's Ghanaian and Jamaican. Um, and we came together as a group. Um, a few of us at the core as founding editors and then expanded to an international team with the idea of publishing contemporary African poetry in the English language um, and devoting a kind of publishing entity to that which really doesn't exist. And so we, we started about five years ago um, and we published the African Poetry Book Series through the University of Nebraska Press. We publish three to four books a year, some of um, collected works of very well-known, established older African poets. We publish um, mid-career poets, um, both across the African continent and the diasporas, as well as a first book prize of an emerging African poet. And each year through Akashic Books in New York, we also publish oh, yeah. um, an African poetry box set of you know, eight to 11 chapbooks um, by emerging African writers, younger African writers, um, that are bound together in a kind of box set. So you get this beautiful box um, that has within it 8, 10, 11 different chapbooks from folks all over the continent and diasporas. And each year when we do that project, we actually choose um, a contemporary African artist whose work um, graces the covers of each of the chapbooks as well as the box set itself. So... You know, we've been up to that for a few years, and it's been a great, great project. Um, we've been able to really kind of put African poetry at the forefront in kind of English language literature. A lot of our writers have been yeah. winning major awards, and we've just started um, publishing translations as well, which is something we've been wanting to do but took a little time to ramp up. So we've got um, several books of translations either that have just come out or coming out in the next uh, year or so. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, if people want to check it out, it's africanpoetrybf.unl.edu. Or that's if you right. Google African Poetry Book Fund, you'll get there. And if you, it looks super cool. It's cool to see like the writers and like different books and stuff. And if you're into poetry or if you're an African or diasporic African poet, you should definitely check it out. So that's cool. 
You know, I have a follow-up question on that too, which may be too impossibly broad, but I, I'm curious, um, can you think of any things, Matthew, that may typify a sort of more uh, Western poetry tradition that books like this break away from? Or is African poetry oh, yeah. just such a broad thing that there's no way to hmm. you know, carve it down to um, shared themes? You know, I think the answer to that is both. Um, one of the things that you'll see when you check out the work that we publish is the incredible range of aesthetic diversity of contemporary African poets. Um, so I think in a way it's really hard to kind of argue that it, it you know, that there's a kind of single aesthetic of any sort. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I think, you know, traditionally, certainly, you know, in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, there was, you know, a, a kind of burgeoning African poetics in the English language that came in part out of oral tradition, in part um, being influenced by English modernist poets and this. So you see a kind of aesthetic there. But with the younger generation and the more contemporary work, they're really pulling from I mean, I, I think it's a truly global aesthetic with, with local roots, if that makes any sense. They're, mm -hmm. they're pulling from so many different places. But at the same time, I would actually argue, um, you know, I, I've been known to criticize the United States of America in various ways, um, <laughs> which is my right. But Indeed. the one thing that I will say about the U.S. is that I think art in the United States, and I will speak specifically to poetry, is incredibly wide-ranging and diverse. I actually think some of the most exciting literature in the world is coming out of the U.S., and in large part because of people coming from all over the world um, mm -hmm. and, and kind of engaging their own lived experiences and histories and trajectories, as well as their own aesthetic traditions and artistic traditions in contemporary poetry. So I think what, what we had found is that African poets were somehow just missing from that conversation and didn't have a kind of proper seat at the table. And so what we wanted to do in many ways was to address that kind of, you know, structural oversight, if you will, and, and create a space for them to be at the table. So you'll find in a lot of contemporary African poetry, they're engaging with various forms of American poetry. They're referencing contemporary mm. African-American poets. They're referencing Latino poets, right? They're, they're reading very widely and engaging in these different traditions um, and, and incorporating it into their own. That's funny. Uh, on that's a, cool. On a much different scale, I mean, one of the, uh, and I think we talked to you about this already, Matthew, but one of the goals that we have with the podcast is just to try and flip the representation story a little bit. And, you know, it's it's a little ironic that Rob and I are both kind of cis white guys, but to the extent that we're able, we're, you know, we're trying to seek out people that are representing different areas. And um, sure. it's just funny how it it's not, yeah, it's, and you know this, but just to, for the benefit of saying it out loud, it's it's not that they're not out there. It's just that you just do that work if you just happen to be friends with a ton of white guys. And, right. <laughs> and there's, there's so much interesting stuff to find out. And I don't know, Rob, do you, do you feel like that the process of meeting all these diverse designers has started to change your work at all? I think it changes my thinking about the work for sure, you know, or like mm -hmm. what conversations I'm having with mm -hmm. people and other artists and like where my influences come from, you know, like right. when I sort of realize how deeply, how narrow banded really a lot of my influences are mm -hmm. across mm -hmm. my life, like trying to work to spread that out 
in some ways feels as invigorating as it did when I was first discovering that there was like an underground or, yeah. you know, a, a creative mm-hmm. culture, you know? And so it's been nice that podcast has really helped me in that regard, I think, of just feeling intrigued by and en- enthusiastic uh, about just reaching out beyond where I would normally go, right. you know, and sort of rehashing, you know, influences that I've had since I was 17 or something. Yeah, does does underground still exist anywhere? Can it? <laughs> and I asked that as a really honest question. Like, is that even possible anymore, Rob? Are, are people able to have that sort of, I heard Ken Nordine talking on the radio at 2 o'clock in the morning, and it blew my mind. And, I mean, I, I remember discovering um, uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000 like that, and just not, like, you just have to wait until you find it again on the dial there's yeah. something pretty special yeah, about right. that is is it is it a drag that's gone away or is it is what we get in exchange for that projects like what matthew's working on because there's always avenues now to bringing those people to the fore yeah it's maybe more about us like our attention right like where we're putting it than whether it exists or not or mm-hmm. like whether it's available or not you know yeah is and like a I, wall of yeah. content yeah yeah i won't i won't say that the well i will say the like the Facebook word or whatever, like like how you create your um, like sphere of influence and mm-hmm. understanding and creativity is is definitely different, you know. For sure. Yeah. Uh, okay, Rob, what do you think? Transition. Speak, speaking of creativity, yeah. <laughs> oh, look at you! <laughs> Cut out my prompt, and that'll be perfect. Taylor, you are up first today. I am. I am. I'm. I'm chomping at the bit. So I um. I uploaded for you guys a little one-minute video. If you want to just go ahead and push it through, you know, open up the link on YouTube and then hit play at the same time and just uh, tell us about what you see and what you think about that. That sounds great. Um, Three, two, one, play. (laughs) (laughs) So we're getting... Whoa. We got like a, a new metal intro. Yeah, that was a radical some, transition right there. Yeah, some background that I couldn't suss out. Oh, that those that was corn. Those were corn kernels for sure. <laughs> Which is very Midwestern of Taylor. Matthew, what is that blue and silver thing? It's like a stapler. It looks like a stapler, but I oh no, that is not a stapler. It's, unless it's incredibly high tech. Is it a, <laughs> oh, it's a it's a it's a straightening iron. I think ah. for someone's hair and that oh <laughs> and he's just popped the corn with it. He just popped a corn kernel with it. This is incredible. That is <laughs> I mean, you know, it's only one kernel at a time, so it's not entirely efficient if you're but you know, there you go. <laughs> so <laughs> Oh, I love I love how it popped kind of flat. Oh yeah. So so maybe we should do a little recap here because we've had the wind knocked out of us and not been knocked out of our chair. We heard what may have been Corn, the band. Yeah. <laughs> that's, that's right. And then I think it's a straightening iron because it's a curling iron I think of as being like a, a cylindrical wand with like a clippy thing. But this Yeah, was, and it was flat, yep. flat on both sides. And it looked like he was adjusting perhaps temperature. Yeah, right. 
it's like 325 or something, something high on the straightening iron. And he had made a little wooden jig or a sort of a harness kind of thing to hold the, hold the, the flattening iron. Yeah. I'm clicking back in the video. So the flattening iron is this amazingly nice looking object. It has like, it looks like, like nice, like teal car paint or something. Has a candy coat look. Yeah, it's really nice. Yeah, it is. It's very sleek. Yeah, yeah. It looks like a '57 Chevrolet or something. Uh huh. It it was the most expensive one at the grocery store. I'll just throw. Oh it right, there. yeah. Four fifty five. Is that what it was set on, Taylor? Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's I, hot. I, yeah. And we just and, kind of watch it for a minute, and then all of a sudden, pop. <laughs> and the the sort of harness holds the so. I think as I as I what I'm sussing out here is that the straightening iron probably is has a, is spring loaded, so it just sort of stays open unless you're squeezing it together. And so what Taylor made is a little jig that holds the top part of the iron against the bottom part, but with just enough gap to hold a kernel of corn between the jaws of the straightening iron. Right. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. And then we just we 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 kind of meditate on it for a moment, and then yeah. boom, you've got yourself a popcorn kernel that you could just pop right in your mouth. I mean, it's, yeah, it, it is definitely overkill. Yes, it's definitely overkill <laughs> and artisanal at the same time. Not, not a lot of right. mystery in this week's uh, in this week's uh, invention. Yeah, <laughs> no, but it's it's wonderful. I mean, I'm I'm just thinking about extending this notion of overkill imagine you know popping an entire bag of popcorn one kernel at a time this way Uh yes Um, did you taylor yeah yeah so i think um i think 20 years ago or more maybe but in uh when i was an undergrad uh, there was a, a buddy of mine, I think it was Noah Kirby, who's this sort of monumental sculptor down in St. Louis, but he was talking about a machine that would pop a single kernel of popcorn, and that was just sort of rolling around in my head forever, and I'd always wanted to have an excuse to do it, uh, but couldn't really come up with a context for it. And then when I looked it up online, there's this whole primarily Japanese-originating series of videos where somebody does this, I mean, they just get a curling iron and just do it. Uh, right, and then everybody laughs about it. But you know, kind of like the uh, ASMR videos, this was popular for 15 seconds or whatever. And so, um, yeah, so I just looked up what the what the temperature was because I guess it pops because the water boils and oh. then for you know forces its way out of mm. the thing, and the pressure causes the the popping. So so I had to get a slightly more expensive straightener that would go up to that temperature. And it takes about two minutes, <laughs> so that's the one thing I cut out for you guys is <laughs> normally you just sit there holding it, looking at it with growing anticipation, and then it it is weirdly satisfying when that when that thing goes off. So we got um, a little time yeah. lapse there, huh? Or yes. Just, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, then and then it, even to 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 extract the kernel is is a labor, right? Cause yes. Because you've got to kind of undo <laughs> the entire jig right. that you've made there in order to open it up yes it, it is a a persnickety device because it's it's overkill but also not so highly crafted that it works easily so perhaps that adds to its overkill now the the gravy so that there's always right um i would assume this holds true for all creative projects but there are the things that i consider doing 
that it gave out because of time considerations. But have you guys heard um, uh, the band Weezer's cover of Toto's Africa? No. The song Africa. <laughs> it's a very honest cover. Uh, and so yeah. I thought, what if I recorded the chorus uh, where I did all the parts for Africa? <laughs> Just as good as it had this like, big growing, you know, it's like this like uh, uh, stadium rock kind of thing. And, and then I, I looked up on YouTube uh, all of the harmony parts, and it sounded really hard, so I, I didn't do it. Uh, but but I, I just thought you guys would get a kick out of the, the things under consideration. There was also like um, trying to manufacture doses of salt and oil that would be, you know, like single serving size. But it, all these things fell by the wayside and I just focused on the on the, the, the primary thing. So I just did a little bit of math. And I think if my math is mm-hmm. right, there's roughly 800 kernels of corn on an ear and there's 123 calories to an ear of corn that would mean that each kernel mm-hmm. is 6.5 calorie calorie and i think you would starve to death using your using your system just trying to i didn't do the math to figure out how long <laughs> now oh, could you yeah, put more than one right. kernel in at a time i guess is the question and did you try that? I didn't, uh, and I was completely remiss, as I now realize. Uh, <laughs> too late. Uh, but it, it'll be, I will do this experiment this week and report back next time. I, I think it's, the trick is that you get the thing heated up, and then they pop, I think, a little faster after the first. But when you're setting the kernel down on the heating surface, you have to make sure not to burn <laughs> yourself. Uh, so originally I had this sort of elaborate little metal chair for the, kernel to sit in uh, but yeah. it was soaking all the heat up and and uh, querying the deal mm-hmm. so so i had to just go kind of uh but yeah i mean the the um as as we've clearly established uh, more research is needed so you had to so there's mm-hmm. a dowel that you sort of thread through um two holes and that dowel's pinning the mm-hmm. the um straightening iron down against the other side of the straightening iron but there has to be enough gap to put an actual kernel of corn in there and this is a thing that if I saw it on YouTube, I'd be like, I can build that in about five minutes. And then I would realize that I either had not enough gap or too much gap for the kernel of corn to be accommodated between the jaws of the straightening iron while pinning it down. And I was curious if you just nailed it right the first time or how you navigated that problem. I totally got lucky on it. I um, So there's two little arms that are proceeding yeah. vertically right which hold the pin as it travels across and they used to be much longer so i just took them when they were longer and pulled them down onto the iron while it was holding a kernel of corn and then just exerted a very small amount of pressure scribed the lines and then just cut them off based on that measurement that's um, pro taylor that's what that is and i i would love to hear a little bit about what drove you to that idea Specifically, uh, as it relates to this notion of overkill, I think um, I think a lot of the stuff I do, and I think Rob, for that matter, I'm curious to hear Rob's opinion. But uh, well, so I was hanging out with my colleague Annika Marie, who uh, is an art historian at Columbia College, and um, we were talking about writing a paper together. And I've been really encouraging her to look at research in this sort of new media space that I think is a little under theorized. Um, and it, but plus, it's just fun, you know, to hang out with your buddies and try to 
apply both of your research areas to it. And so after some very careful consideration of what, of how I describe my own work, she said, oh, you set up problems for yourself and then you make humorous, um, or like you give yourself uh, problems and then you make humorous solutions. And I thought, well, yeah, Yeah. I guess that's kind of (laughs) it. Yeah, yeah. And so I think often, and I I have to be careful with this with my students too, because I'm always showing them examples of how to make an artistic response to a creative problem and I think humor is almost always involved, or at least absurdity. Um, and I think absurdity helps um, helps you talk about stuff that is potentially serious in a way that's not necessarily off-putting. So mm. I've definitely got examples of projects that you know get into political statements or um, uh, you know social commentary and so forth, using absurdity as a bit of a cover. Although I think in this case, and it's the thing with the podcast, like I often just kind of release myself from the need to for these projects to live anywhere else than in this very format. Um, and so as long as I know that right. you know our guest and Rob will see it and think it's funny and it'll make an interesting thing to talk about, uh, in that way it can just be they can be abject failures as well, as long as they you know they result in interesting stories. Um, so yeah, I, I don't really know where it came from. I just it just occurred to me that that was something that had been in the back of my mind for a long, long time, and that this would, if it worked, that this would apply well to it. And I was I was amazed how well it worked. <laughs> mm. So uh, uh, yeah, I don't know where that stuff comes from, but it's it's definitely reflected. And I've tried to apply for some grants and other exhibition opportunities lately, and I think this is our thirty ninth episode. So there's. Probably yeah. at least a hundred hours of this stuff, Rob, and like trying to figure out how to convince somebody that this has any kind of value outside <laughs> of itself is is a real pickle. Let me tell you. Well, but I I actually for all of us who are professionals in various ways in our fields, right? I I think there's something really wonderful about making something simply to make something mm-hmm. um, without having to tie it to you know, something bigger, a very specific kind of commission or, or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, you were saying that that you've kind of resolved that the things you make for this show are just things you're making for this show. And I imagine that feels very freeing in a lot of ways. Oh, for sure. Because mm-hmm. the, the deeper we get into our respective kind of work professionally, the harder it actually is to make for the sake of making. Great. Well, I, uh, excellent feedback, guys. I, I would love to uh, move on unless you have any other comments. Yeah. Let's see what Matthew's got for us. But let me just maybe frame it a little bit. One, I think I need to be adamantly clear that this is totally incomplete. Um. Mm that it's a kind of work in progress. So I, I was really trying to, I, I don't know why, but I was somehow surprised at the topic. I don't know what I was expecting because it, <laughs> liter- it literally could have been anything. And when Rob right. said, the topic is overkill, I thought, what? Um, but then I thought, what a fascinating thing to think about. And so I started, you know, just really in a very literal sense, thinking about um, the idea of overkill um, what that means, that there's a kind of inherent violence, in a sense, to the, the term itself. 
but also just this idea of things being too much, this kind of sense of decadence um, that I think is so ubiquitous in our society these days. I think we're, we're surrounded by overkill. Um, so I, I started kind of playing with that, and then, and you know, as I tend to do, I wrote. Um, so I just wrote this very, it's relatively short, a kind of two-part piece just thinking about the idea of overkill. And I think one thing I will also say is that the poem is a bit more heavy-handed than I care to be. Um, mm. So this is something that if I were working at it in a different context, I'd likely edit um, in a very different way. But I wanted to kind of engage that heavy-handedness as another sense of overkill. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there you go. So it's just two short parts here. Cool. Exciting. Oh, overkill. One. Routine stop. The way his hand wrenches the neck of a stranger, how his feet kick the legs out from under him, leaving the weight of his body in the mercy of overkill. Two. Son. There was a woman in an airport, her son divided by oceans, by war, by triggers, by blood. There were the hands of another who slid inside her palm an envelope and whispered, Go and bring him. They carried him over, tucked him under, hid him inside, sheltered him closely, but the men in green with their eyes made of convex lenses and polycarbonate searing spotted him like a laser searching for a target, placed him in a cage made of polished earth, and sent him as far from his heart as they could. So yes. That's it. <laughs> nice. Wow. That was intense. Man, yeah. he hearing things read aloud really does make a big difference. Yeah. For sure. Okay. Yeah, well, you know, I think poetry is very much an oral art form as much as anything. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm -hmm. So that's that's a necessary part of it. But yeah. So Rob, this is kind of a this is a new uh form to critique for us. How do yeah. you want to enter into it? Yeah. <laughs> so Matthew has kindly posted the text of it up for Taylor and I to look at. Mm -hmm. Wow. Uh one wow. thing I'll just throw out there yeah. is because part one was so short by comparison to part two I was enjoying myself, and I was worried that part two would end as quickly as part one had. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, yeah. Yeah, it was nice that it, I I thought the same. I had kind of a, a William Gibson vibe going on for part of that. So uh, for, for those that aren't familiar, William Gibson Wright wrote uh, Neuromancer and coined the term cyberpunk and so forth, and um, is really big on describing... Uh, materials mm, like yeah. uh, like things that are worn and then the materials often come to define you know the potentially violent or like they define the characters that wear them as they do in real life but he's sort of infamous for yeah. describing things material forward so yeah i really responded strongly to uh the eyes being made yep. of convex lenses and uh what did you make of um polycarbonate searing I, I felt like that was one of the rare moments in this piece where something took place that i couldn't immediately attach a, a a literal behavior to yeah i had the same experience for sure and and i it made me think about searing and i was like searing could be like a like a fabric or fashion or like something like that like a fairing or something mm. like i had that was my first sort of mm. 
puzzle, like mm-hmm. trying to tease apart the puzzle of language. And then I was like, oh, searing is also, a, you know, a, an experience or an action. And burning. And, but it, it definitely had the, the same, like there was a, definitely like a sort of cyberpunk like tinge that that sort of flashed through the language that was really cool um yeah and i think of i'm thinking in the world of like weapons and stuff is what it made me think of or almost like a body armor like something in that that world yeah i mean i was thinking about searing as this kind of hotness and intensity um and and the polycarbonate as one of well frankly one of the materials used as part of border patrolling in the police state, right? Tactical um, material. You know, so so that, yeah, exactly, right? So whether it be in the actual lenses of binoculars and the things that they use to kind of seek people out. Um, but yeah, that's what I was thinking about. And that then triggered this kind of idea of the laser um, that follows that. Um, but again, that that I also allowed myself, which I would never generally do to be really kind of heavy-handed in that way i mean the line spotted him like a laser searching for a target i would never publish right it's just far too it's almost cliche in its overtness Uh uh um but i wanted to think about overkill in that way right to actually model it in some manner um within the poem itself not just conceptually but in a kind of more literal sense so, so Matthew, this is it's cool to hear you allude to this when you were talking about my video and the sort of the things that the, the freedom that comes with producing something that is not destined necessarily for the potential limitations or structures of publishing in different environments. Um, right. Do you feel that when you work because of your knowledge of, you know, publishability and so forth, that there's a certain avenue of creativity that is locked off to you or do you just write all those things and just keep them to yourself well i mean i i think you know you my general practice is that you've just got to write what you're going to write and then you work you work at it through revision Mm -hmm. um but in this case i mean i don't feel like the publishability question is necessarily because of any stricture from the outside but i just my own aesthetics wouldn't necessarily lean in this direction. Uh So I wanted to play with it as a kind of challenge. And I I suppose in that sense, it is freeing because there's not that pressure of, of having to kind of see it in a certain light and, and, you know, defend it or relate to it in that way, but rather as an exercise, um, Mm -hmm. which I think for all of us, whatever we're making or creating is really necessary to have those moments to just, play with things right and my guess is just given the nature of things this will find its way in some iteration or another into to some you know larger piece of work that i do later on Mm -hmm. um so it ends up becoming really important fodder i think in the same way that i imagine even that the contraption that you made for your for your bit could end up leading you to think about and create something else I also love the idea you seem to forward there that you it's possible not to write not like oneself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, the fact that it comes out of you always means that it's of you, but you're sort of um, acknowledging multiple selves there in a way. Yeah. Oh, I, I mean, I think as a writer that's essential, that you, mm. you have to push yourself to, you know, 
step into a different kind of voice or a different kind of perspective. And mm-hmm. the, and like it highlights like the craft of writing, which is like for someone who I am not a writer, um, and it's like a thing I never even like. It's like oh yeah, that's people do that. Like they they are able they can they they have a um like a like a an aesthetic and a creative toolbox and all that kind of stuff that they apply to writing and also they they have enough um knowledge and experience that they can also uh and practice that they can extend beyond that at times and like write write in another form through another set of ideas or form or something i i feel like i spend so much time trying to just doing the like very like literal like this is what I mean, <laughs> you know, like, like a part of writing, like right. this is what's in my head. Like I am trying to tell you what's in my head, <laughs> like, n- and not the like, you know, um, creativity part of writing, you know, this is true of all art, yeah. I think, yeah. but I, I think context becomes so important that I, I think we have created a very problematic narrative in our reading of art where we often want to kind of universalize everything. Mm. Right and say this piece, whatever this piece might be, is great. Period. Um, rather than say this piece makes a lot of sense in this context, mm-hmm. and writing in many ways, because of its versatility and its kind of more regular use, I suppose, um, leans in that direction. Right. You have to. You often are writing for very specific purposes. But even in in the creative world, if you're writing you know, what we refer to as an occasional poem, right? A piece for, you know, your your someone's nuptials or uh-huh. whatever, right? It has a very specific context and purpose. And it may not be something that you would write in a different context. And I think it's it's really, to me, it's really enjoyable to engage in various art within that context and appreciate it for its kind of purpose within that space, and not necessarily have to look at it as, you know, this thing that is somehow universally amazing no matter where you put it or place it. You know, I remember reading somewhere about the challenge of how to mark toxic waste, which won't be safe uh, for humans to be around for, you know, 50,000 years or whatever it is. So, so how do you create a graphical indicator of the type of danger to be found within that will still be readable by people that far in the future? Wow. Uh, kind of like the ultimate um, context communication problem. Yeah. <laughs> when, when the context ever has just been, like, it's been so long that whatever context we might have feels very remote or unknowable, even. Or the Arecibo message. There's all sorts of, like, JPL oriented stuff, I feel like. that. Which, uh, uh, which spacefaring uh, satellite had the golden record? Oh, on Voyager. It, Rob, Voyager. Yeah. I had never heard of occasional poetry. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, when you're asked to write a poem for a wedding, for a birth, for a funeral, oh, yeah. these these are referred to as occasional poems, which, you know, it's an interesting thing in the world of poets, right? There are some poets who refuse to do occasional poems, right? Yeah, it's like DJing a wedding if you're a techno right, DJ or right. something, yeah. <laughs> and there are others who really kind of thrive at it, right? So when you think, for example, about Elizabeth Alexander was one of our great poets doing the inaugural poem for Obama's first inauguration, right? That is very much an occasional poem. And you're, you know, you are, you're confined in part by the context, right? In the same way that, you know, if you're giving a 
graduation speech, right? There, there's a certain level of of engagement that you have to have. You know, you can't you can't go off into some incredibly negative, um, you know, dystopic rant in the middle of a graduation speech. Right? So. <laughs> just, just watch me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm tenured now, baby. All right, Rob. Oh, you ready to? Yeah. So we got some kind of iPad or tablet or whatever, and Rob has a stylus. Looks like he's working in a graphics program, but I don't find it familiar unless this is some different kind of Chrome and Illustrator. Maybe it's a different program. <laughs> got a little sketch of a robot, and well, the word human. Oh, there it is. He's now sketching a human. The robot looks pretty basic. It's like a circle with a little rod sticking out of it so that its function is still completely uh, opaque to me. You know, so in a previous episode, Rob talked about how he wished that he knew how to draw. He was lamenting his his drawing skills. And I'm wondering if if this won't have something to do with his his practicing such a thing. We've got a little... uh... Googling of weightlifters, it looks like. Um, oh, no, wait. Figure pointing. There you go. Oh, that's interesting. A lot of people squatting. A lot of a lot of photos of people squatting on Google. <laughs> I see. We've, we've rejected our first attempt. And now we're out in, the, out in L.A. doing something. Yeah, this is definitely L.A. Looks like he's got a dash cam on the car. It's time-lapsed. It's moving really quickly down the highway here. There's not really that much traffic, so I wonder Yeah, and it's, where, it's where, dark where out. this is in L.A. Or what time it is. Yeah. This is getting creepy, and I'm digging it. <laughs> uh-huh. Out in some form of wilderness here. Mm-hmm. Perhaps it's the... Uh, Hills right above JPL. Um, no, no, it actually doesn't look like that. We're out a little further out. This is more desert. Rob um, can only drink coffee if it's been measured it's out on a digital gram scale. Uh-huh. Uh, so you can see his his version of roughing it is is perhaps not everyone's version of roughing it. Well, yeah, he was making coffee there with a camp stove and a Keymax, which <laughs> I have to say I respect immensely. Um, I use a Keymax every morning. I did not notice that I needed to go off caffeine entirely until right after I'd visited Rob and stayed with him and drank coffee with him until my heart was about to explode. And then and I, I haven't, oh, I haven't oh had no. caffeine for like four years since. Uh, so we're out in the desert here, either yeah. somewhere in kind of Mojave Palm desert area or perhaps even as far into Arizona. Well, he actually got it to rain, so that seems like a pretty unusual... So I'm guessing it also has something to do. Rob uh, has a history of working in the desert, um, and so I'm wondering if this is one of. I think there is a certain a couple of pieces that he might be responsible for checking in on. I don't know. He'll have to tell me once this is done if I'm remembering this correctly. But he's gone to somewhere that's sort of 
industrial looking and fenced in and he appears to be able to lock the fence so that suggests he either has a relationship with these people or he's doing something illegal well there's a sign on the door that says residence support unit the center for something oh and here's our here's our audio yeah there's a bunch of these regularly spaced industrial buildings but everything is super far apart so we're definitely out in the boonies for sure. This has a really great video game quality to it. Yeah. Okay, the camera's sped up here. And it makes the uh, the gear shifting on the the engine really enjoyable. To... <laughs> so now we're really getting out to where everything, even though there's mountains in the distance, it's just absolutely flat. Yeah. Uh, I'm really, I'm really grasping for how he's going to bring this back to squatting robots. It's the is that the salt flats in uh where are the salt flats? Are they still in California or is that a Well there are a few. Are there many? Though I think yeah, that those those would be way southern California, southeast. Maybe uh, Death Valley? Yeah, that's that's kinda what I'm thinking here. Well, and they're not kidding. I mean, it's just absolutely white. It looks like snow cover, if you didn't know better. <laughs> and I'm trying to keep overkill in mind uh, as I'm watching what he's doing. Set up the uh, tripod, and now you're standing in front of it. <laughs> Making some quasi yoga poses, or yeah, then, so, ah, so I think he's modeling for right. himself uh, for drawing purposes. Right. <laughs> this is how you learn to draw. <laughs> uh, he's taking on some poses that are reminiscent of the poses you make when you prepare to 3D model a, mm-hmm. a figure, like a game figure, for example, where you have that T pose, they call it. Um, so I don't know if that'll be related. I, I'm also really wishing that the um, uh, Benny Hill music was uh, put over the back of this thing. That's pretty funny. Yeah, yeah so he yeah. just rocked a bunch of poses way out in the salt flats, and then now he's just driving all the way back. <laughs> so I'm wondering if that was out by Joshua Tree in that area. I can't remember the name of those salt flats out there. And it looks like he did. This did really take quite an investment because there were there are two periods of driving at night. So there was a <laughs> the overkill is certainly uh, becoming more evident. <laughs> oh, we're back to the iPad. 
All right, we're erasing our original drawing, and then presumably we'll bring in the uh, reference photos here he just took. Yeah, there they are. <laughs> I see. I see what he's doing here. So it looks like he's about to trace his own figure. Mm -hmm. So he's coming in and making a monochromatic, uh, kind of cel-shaded looking reproduction of his body here. Yeah, what program is this you're working in, Rep? Oh, it's uh, it's um, Procreate. It's um, it's very inexpensive but very powerful app for the iPad Pro. It's pretty, it's mm -hmm. pretty great. It's sort of like, it's like Photoshop Lite, but it's really they really tuned in like the the iPad UI really pretty nicely. Mm -hmm. The downside is it's not vector. I mean, I think that's not a downside for a lot of people who do like good interest, you know, deep illustration or work. But I find myself wanting it to, to be vector sometimes. <laughs> yeah, so we're just seeing time lapse of rubs process of reproducing himself and now we get to find out what will become of the robot right Maybe. and he's he's created a wonderful figure um you know from from his early kind of archaic drawings now to this incredible <laughs> indeed yeah bad so i love how after all that we never found out what the robot was all about nope <laughs> mystery <laughs> well it may have been the robot who was doing the drawing all along oh. you know, the don't... call was coming from inside the house <laughs> <laughs> so Matthew do you think that uh, tracing and so forth this this is one area I, I've always been interested in do, do you feel that a drawing has to be done you know, from the hand and without these sorts of aids particularly digital aids well i guess it depends on what you mean by has to for what purpose right i'm someone who can't draw to save his life so mm -hmm. this kind of tracing and and you know use of figures would save my life if i actually had to do something like that um so i i think it can be handy though i suppose one can't then go out into the world and say i draw really well um but, yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on the context. Podcast. I, I've i always been interested in this theory uh, posited. We may have talked about it on here before about uh, by uh, David Hockney and this um, scientist whose first name I forget, but Falco. It's, it's a Hockney-Falco thesis where they talk about trying to find evidence that the old masters were employing camera obscura and those kinds of technologies in order to um, uh, produce their masterworks. And so it's it's down to cool stuff like looking at the distortion of a geometric pattern on a rug and then forwarding that the kinds of lenses that were available at the time would have made, you know, those kinds of visual errors. And then it, it raises a fun conversation about, you know, uh, a, a tracing device does not mean that you just are, are pumping out, you know, Leonardo da Vinci's all day or anything. And Rob, as you lament not being able to draw, like Matthew was saying, do you feel like, what you want is to be able to sit down with an ancient, you know, piece of vine charcoal and just do it yourself. <laughs> or does the computer mediation satisfy you? I'm sa I'm satisfied by the computer mediation. Yeah, I, I think for me, like it, like draw, like being able to draw really well, it's just not something I'll I, I can dedicate the time to and the practice to. Yeah. But like mm -hmm. th through the tools we have at our disposal, I would like to be able to 
I don't know, express myself through something that isn't also just squares and circles, <laughs> you know, like, mm-hmm. um, sure. and so, yeah, I don't, I'm, I'm seeing where, where it takes me. Nice. So are you going to head out to the desert every single yeah, time? Yeah. Every time I need to do a drawing, I'm going to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> and where was that? Was that out by Joshua? That was the, the Bonneville salt flats in Utah. Ah, so that's, Utah. yeah. So it's, it's All a right. 12 yeah. hour drive each way. <laughs> Did you go out there for any other reason? Nope. Nice. <laughs> wow. Overkill indeed. Well, uh, I did do a thing, but it wasn't a reason that I needed to go. And you did that exclusively for this. Like I, I fixed, there was a Wi-Fi problem out there that I told Matt Coolidge from the Center for Land Use Interpretation, which is where I stayed overnight. I was like, hey, Matt, you mind if I stay in the residence unit if no one's there right now or if someone is there right now and they don't mind a guest? Could I stay there overnight because I, I want to take this road trip? That's also pretty great that you took a 12-hour yeah. drive to uh, troubleshoot someone's Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. Did you, <laughs> yeah. did you make sure it's plugged in? Yes? Oh, okay. See yeah. you later. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Uh, so in terms of overkill, I don't know. Do you guys feel like – I mean, I, I kind of feel like all of the pieces – are doing exactly what they set out to do. And so in some ways that undercuts the nature of the overkill. What do you think? No, no, I I like that idea. I think there is a weird kind of neutralizing element to it. Maybe Uh because you're, uh you're, we were all conscientiously engaging overkill. And one of the fundamental negatives of overkill is that people don't know they're doing it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It made me think, um, Matthew, there was, I forget, one of us said something. It wasn't me. It was one of y'all. But it made me think of Natural Born Killers, that like Oliver <laughs> ah, Stone yeah, film. Yeah, yeah, And how ridiculous it feels now, like that film. Like, <laughs> because like at the time it was like, a sh- it was meant to be like a shocking film. Yeah. Like, and it was like the shot, like our, t- we live in a time that is shocking, you know? And like, it, and like excessive violence and stuff and now that just feels like kind of corny, you know? Um, and also like how narrowly scoped that film was. Like when you think about it, how the, the issues we deal with are dealing with right now around violence in, in different manifestations in the country and the world, like how, uh, really small minded natural born killers is, you know, like it it did make me think of like our, our work in that context of like, us knowing sort of how to embody overkill, right? Like, um, right. Or maybe mm. growing comfortable with it. Like, uh, <laughs> so did like, you, I, yeah. I do have one more question about sure, Rob's sure, yeah. piece. Did you, did you choose the salt flats specifically out of a sense of overkill or was it something about that landscape that you actually felt was really necessary for the photos? Yeah, I wanted, so originally, um, I was trying to, I have been trying to draw figures, like the human figure, better. Um, And so I even, like, got this iPad app that's, like, a posable figure. Like, you could, you know, remember, like, the wooden posable figures you could get at the art store? They Mm -hmm. probably still sell them. Um, And that you could sort of pose this, like, um, idealized human form, you know, and then use that as your reference for doing sketching or something. And they, they sell an iPad app that lets you sort of, digitally take that same human posable figure and then 
pose it right and then you can screenshot it and then use that as a reference or something in your drawing um so i was looking i had been looking for on google i was like oh, i gotta be able to find someone who's like sort of squatting down which is what i wanted like someone squatting down to look uh, like or sort of pointing or like just looking down at a thing because I, I was trying to do this storyboard for work of like a person like pointing at this robot and um and i couldn't find a good image that had a nice clear like a like stock photography right was sort of one of the aspects of it is that it has this sort of neutral background you know in order to mm-hmm. to allow you to, to recontextualize right the the meaning of the image or put a different background in, but I couldn't find one that was any good. And I was like, this is it. This is my overkill moment. I'm going to drive. <laughs> I'm going to drive to the place that I know is the most neutral b- background on earth, which is the Bonneville salt flats. So, <laughs> right. So I went for it. That's great. It was yeah, tw- love it, man. 24 hours of driving. And I was there including getting lunch and sleeping. I think I was there for, let's see, I got in at like four and of course, there was a storm, which that rain would happen, and so all the power had gone out and everything. So none of my <laughs> camera batteries had been charged or anything, so I couldn't go out that day. So I slept overnight and then went out the next day, and I left around three. So I guess I was there almost exactly twenty-four hours too. That's, yeah. that's pretty amazing. It was fun. Yeah, I dig it. I really like road tripping, and I hadn't really been on a road trip of of any substance this summer. So I was like, I'm going to squeeze a road trip into to a two and a half day trip, which was pretty fun. Yeah, especially brave because you have a kid. Yeah, I, f- I feel like n- now when I see things like this, I just think about what a pain in the butt the scheduling must have been. <laughs> yes, Jen and my foster kiddo were were out of town that weekend, so it was a perfect like the timing couldn't have been more perfect, which sort of sealed the deal. I was like, this is I can do it, so I'm going to. Did you have to take time off work to get this? No, time? I left right after right after work. That was that was why oh, like nice. it got it went to dark pretty soon after I started. Oh right, because I had like stopped to get coffee for the road. And I think some like half and half and like a, a jug of water in case I broke down in the desert or something. And that was it. <laughs> yeah, this could have been a whole different it Yeah, it could have. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I put the, Go, the GoPro in the car and I was like, this could turn out, this could go any direction really. And I guess it will still work. <laughs> you can find photos of our finished projects over at projects.opposablepodcast.com. We also have links in our show notes to lots of cool stuff. And we post cool stuff and photos of our projects at our Instagram account called opposable underscore podcast we'd like to send you an opposable thumb sticker if you share a podcast episode on social media rate us on itunes or send smoke signals or some other cool thing to let people know about the podcast we will mail you an opposable thumb sticker just contact us on instagram at opposable underscore podcast or at our email which is opposable podcast at gmail.com that sticker is of a logo which is the awesome neon thumb wrestlers logo created by wolf mask and you can check out his other cool work at wolfmaskart.co.uk We'd like to give Blondie Hacks, Nick Kantar, and Walter Kutundu a shout-out as our top Patreon supporters. Thank you, Blondie Hacks, Nick, and Walter. If you'd like to join them in the League of Patreon Supporter Badasses, please go to patreon.com slash thumbs to sponsor us. And anything you can donate really, really helps, even if it's just a dollar. Our podcast is dedicated to providing a harassment-free experience for everyone, regardless of race, gender, age, sexual orientation, disability, physical appearance, body size, knowledge of subject matter, or religion, or lack thereof. We actively support an inclusive environment, and we want you to be a part of it. You can check out our full code of conduct over at our site. Matthew, do you have any links you want to share? Um, Well, I have a website, matthewshinoda.com, where people can learn a little bit about my own work. And I think Taylor had put up the uh, African Poetry Book Fund 
mm-hmm. link as well, which you had mentioned earlier in the show. Um, and I think that that's it from my end. Shout out to everyone who's writing syllabi right now. I, I, I feel your pain and I'm there with you and I've been doing very little creative otherwise. Um, so I have not got a lot to add right now, except that just like, uh, we're with you. Don't give up. Don't give up. Yeah. I know. I know a number of people in that same boat. I have two things that I'll share that are just sort of random things I think are cool. The first one is this guy freehand profit and he makes really elaborate masks out of sneakers. So he takes like, um, (laughs) so he's sort of this, you know, the sort of sneaker culture, like sneaker collector, um, community. He takes sneakers that sort of have cachet or are interesting in that area and then makes these really elaborate, like full face masks, um, out of them. And they're really amazing. And he, he definitely has some kind of high end clientele, you know, who, who buy these elaborate masks made out of very expensive collector shoes. Um, and that's cool. And his photography is on point. Yeah. Too. Yeah. He really, um, he really is, is doing a, I, the, yeah. What makes me really like it is like, one is it's sort of taking something that you know and think of as valuable and really he's able to really, really like turn it into something else that's very valuable. Like without, I'm sure like certain people get enraged when they're like, how can you cut those shoes? There was only 600 of those made or whatever, but he's somehow been able to really get people to understand that what he's doing is as interesting and cool as, as sneaker collecting, you know? And, and, and he's so good at art, like sort of sharing his enthusiasm for sneaker culture while at the same time meticulously dissecting those shoes and making them into something else. So, um, it's really cool. <laughs> really interesting person. Freehand profit. If you check him out, he's in LA somewhere. So hopefully I'll That's bump great. into him at some point. Um, and then the other thing that I'm into is this thing called native fire N a T I V E F I E R like native, a fire kind of, and it's a, a cool free kind of software app that lets you turn any web page into a standalone application. Um, and so like say for instance like i use it because i like i use google calendar i want it to be like a separate app like i don't want it to be a tab inside of my web browser all the time so i can like mm-hmm. quickly jump to it by like hitting command tab or something and so you can install native fire and then just like type into the command like native fire and then the url and it spits out uh an electron which is like a javascript framework um like a native app that your your os can use whether it's linux or windows or mac and then you can run that like in your taskbar or whatever and it's really really good and i've used some other tools that were good um but they're kind of old and a little bit crusty and so i was really psyched that this thing works and it's it seems to work really good like i've been using it for again to have google calendar like in my doc in my taskbar and it's been working great so i thought there's a lot of cool things that people could could experiment with oh i did see a really cool video about how Cuban link chains are made those like big chunky gold chains, but I'll save that for another time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You had, you had more exciting browsing habits than me. I just, I actually got really excited today when I picked up my department's uh, syllabus template and then realized, Oh, I can, I can relax into some mindless paperwork where I don't have to wonder if I'm going to do a good job. <laughs> like it's just, it'll eat up hours of my time. And I always have to I need to have like a rubber band on my wrist to snap to remind myself whenever I'm enjoying paperwork because it's just it's just death. <laughs> like, 
I, I must never enjoy this. <laughs> so, Rob, I'm super excited to uh, get the big payoff here from Matthew. Yes. Uh, please, what's the next uh, challenge? Uh-huh. Well, you know, initially I thought let's do the opposite of overkill. Let's do subtlety, but that was too easy. Uh-huh. Mm. Um, so, the challenge for the next one is oceanic. Whoa. Whoa. All right. Oh, I'm, ar- I'm already getting it. It's already coming in. Whoa. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Matthew, that's a great one. Wow, thanks. That's so yeah, expansive. Don't dunch. And I'll 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 be I'll be really curious to see what folks come up with. Yes. Yeah, 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 totally. Oceanic. I did by the way forget to mention an event. Oh, cool. Um, Ooh, let's hear yeah. it. If you've got any East Coast listeners, um, on September 13th, I will be at Yale University at the annual Wyndham Campbell Literature Festival, um, speaking on a panel with some writers on anticipating an audience for African writing. Oh, Ran. That's cool. Um, and I'll, I'll put a link up, but anybody interested in African literature um, will be at Yale in September. That's cool. What was the day again? Nice. The 13th of September. 13th of September. Cool. Mm-hmm. Audience, take yeah. note. And I'll, and I'll be speaking specifically with uh, Jennifer McCombe, who is a Ugandan writer um, who's written a wonderful novel called Kintu. Oh, cool. Yeah, we'll, we'll link to that in show notes so people can check it out. Oh, man, I'm going to have a Amazon bonanza after this podcast. Yeah, I know, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Matthew, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Your Your poem was super cool. Yeah, thank you both. That was great. That was a lot of fun. Really great product, Matthew, and I'm going to I'm going to spend some more time with that poem. I loved it.